106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. I feel like it's so funny because you you watch none of these movies and watching Trading Places, which was the first one I rewatched. I kind of had the feeling <laughs> watching eighty like being exposed to movies from the eighties in this era. Mm-hmm. It's it has to be a mind fuck of a different kind of beast, like. <laughs> so i'll be honest in the first i don't know two thirds of trading places i was like okay there's some like unfortunate 80s isms happening yeah there were. <laughs> but like this is still surprisingly economically relevant yeah, yeah. and like i actually found an atlantic article from 2015 that basically is like yo, the economic relevancy of this thing is wild. And I was, like, kind of vibing. Like, we were vibing. We were hanging out. I was like, okay, movie, like, I don't respect all of your choices, but I see what you're finna do. Like, yes, okay. And then I was like, oh, oh, God. Oh, (laughs) the last 20 minutes. Or a roller coaster. I was like, my entire body was clenched. Like, I left that movie (laughs) feeling tired. Was it just starting at the train scene, basically? Yeah. Where... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, like I said, there were a lot of unfortunate 80s-isms, but I thought it was a pretty balanced look, especially the way that Eddie Murphy's character is treated. Yeah. And I felt like it was making fun of certain cultural aspects while also extending empathy. What do you mean? Explain a little more. I felt like it was more making a commentary on, uh, for lack, I don't know what to call it. This is going to sound really bougie, but like making fun of people more who are economically disadvantaged, but also drawing attention to the fact they are majority people of color, as opposed to making fun of people of color for being economically disadvantaged. Yeah, I can see that. Until the train scene. (laughs) Which... I will say, I was discussing this with a friend on the phone yesterday, and he pointed out that in the narrative, it is implied that Valentine signed off on this plan. So at least that gives it a little bit of a narrative out. (laughs) And the thing, I think the blackface scene in Trading Places, it's more along the lines of how it is in Tropic Thunder, where everyone, everyone knows the ridiculousness of it. And so they know that it's ridiculous, but their plan is a little bit half-baked. So it's like, they know it's ridiculous, but they're kind of throwing up like Hail Marys or whatever. Right. For me, 
in in addition to that, the thing that really lost me is the like continued torture via gorilla <laughs> of the person who objectively wasn't even the worst bad guy in the movie. Yeah, he was number three. He was number three. Yeah, yeah. So like the other two are just poor and sad now. He is being like. <laughs> anally probed <laughs> he, is, he is being anal raped in a gorilla costume <laughs> god please never isolate that sound bite he is being deported to a completely different continent as a Which, sex slave I'm sure at some point they will realize that is not a gorilla I mean hey man look at them they're in love well, didn't they say they were going to, like, a reserve? Like, there are scientists there, and one of those scientists is going to be like, mm, Look, cat. That's a long, slow boat ride. Cat, the, if the boat come, is a rocking, don't come and knock it. Cat, all, I'm telling you, it's so much cocaine, so you much know, drugs in the 80s. They, they, they may have been like, hey, this, who's this new breed of plastic looking gorillas <laughs> you know you know what light beer and sex in a canoe have in common they're both fucking near water and i think this is a, a trope generally in 80s movies that I, is the heteronormativity of it especially makes my skin crawl is yeah. the idea that like taking it up the butt is the worst punishment that you can ever <laughs> receive as a man Oh, yeah, I mean, and, 80s, 80s are a very homophobic time period. And in, that's in just kind of icky for me. There, yeah. are a couple, there was a lot of moments in this movie, and that's when I say, like, I didn't, like, it was a lot of 80s-isms, where, yeah. like, at one point, Eddie Murphy goes, oh, y'all are fucking faggots. And I was like, was, I, like, yeah, that's actually a thing for Eddie Murphy's career. Like, like any, yeah. any talk of A.D. Murphy in the 80s, you have to talk about homophobia. Like, there's, mm-hmm. no, there's no two ways around it. And yeah. the implied, you know, him being homophobic, not from this movie, but, you know, his stand-ups at the time. Like, and like I told you before, like, Eddie Murphy is probably, like, the second most famous entertainer, like, in America at, mm-hmm. at, at his apex, only behind Michael Jackson. Like, that's how much fame and notoriety had mm-hmm. and so even with that you know him screwing the f-word it was something to certain sect of people but it wasn't enough to, to too many people and also like i think even growing up with this movie in rerun culture they obviously they they blurred out like a lot of those words so there's like a lot of people who grew up with this movie me in particular Maybe you watch this on USA or TBS where they cut out those parts so many times, you don't even remember that even being a part of the movie. Like, I've seen this movie on Rewinds way more than I've seen unedited. And I always kind of forget, like, yeah, he's, like, dropping the F word pretty crazy. I had a friend who straight up said, I don't think you're going to like this. I think if you had seen it when you were a little younger you probably will like it, would have liked it a little more because you weren't as like, you know, you, you're not as as morally kind of yeah. locked in when you're like a kid. Yeah. But I'll be honest, I liked the idea, I liked the actors, and I liked a lot of the payoff enough that I don't know that I'll ever watch it again, 
but yeah. I'm not mad we watched it. Yeah, that's kind of why after I watched the movie, that's why I was kind of saying we probably should have watched some other movies instead because I could kind of tell through the lens of like 2020, like this wouldn't be necessarily a movie that aged well. But then even when I asked you and I kind of thought about it more, I was kind of thinking, well, it's actually good to watch this type of movie because we can reevaluate a movie that a lot of people love. There was like a lot of time period. I mean, even still now, I would say this is probably, even without looking at Eddie Murphy's filmography, I would probably say this is like the fifth best Eddie Murphy movie. Tell how you beat on the cop. Wasn't no cop, man. It was cops. Plural. Nine, ten cops. Beat the shit out of ten cops and had to change my whole strategy around. Yo, when they brought you in here and booked you, you was crying like a pussy. Yeah. That's because it's one of the cops fell. He threw tear gas in my face. And that's the kind of shit they use on crowds, man. I still walk in here like a man, so get out of my face, all right? I mean, you, you beating up on a man? You putting a man in a hospital? How come I don't see no marks on you? Yeah. Because I'm a karate man, all right? Karate man bruise on the inside. They don't show their weaknesses. But you don't know that because you're a big Barry White-looking motherfucker. Now get off my back, all right? I wish my bitches hurry up and get here. I ain't got no time to be sitting inside this cell with you. Where is your bitches, Mr. Big Time Pimp? Yeah. Didn't I tell you that the phone and my limousine is busted and I can't get in contact with my bitches? And it's, it was mega popular, too. So it's important to evaluate that. Talk about how weirdly sex worker positive this movie was. Because I was <laughs> kind of shocked. <laughs> <laughs> oh jamie lee curtis oh first of all my love my life my jamie lee curtis i think i have said that on the show before maybe that should be our first t-shirt <laughs> but like i was not expecting them to take her grind as a sex worker seriously and they totally did yeah i mean could i have done without like her second scene like stripping her clothes off and just like tits like you can say no you can say you could live with it. I I was not mad that I had to, but I did think they could maybe save it for her second scene. Well, I, I do think it is important in terms of like how you kind of unfold a character. Yeah. But I also appreciated that when he was sick, he was like, well, you got to go to work. Yeah. You've got an appointment. Like, I, I don't want to get in the way of, of how you earn your living. And she's like explaining how she can retire. And he's like so confused. He's like, well, yeah. but but you're a whore and you just <laughs> quote all of the creatures from uh, the Flintstones that are also like household appliances. It's a living. No, they, they definitely take her very seriously in the movie. And yeah, she is definitely one of the pieces of this film that has aged remarkably well. Yeah. It, yeah. Like it's, it is a pretty cool sort of thing to see. Like, yeah. Like that initial shock of him, you're a prostitute. And then, like, she's, like, explaining herself like a full-fledged adult. And then he, like, immediately takes her seriously. Within a week, he is like, let me go stand outside in the cold so you can, while I'm sick, so you can, like, make money. And, like, I have to say that I don't know exactly how long the timeline of this movie is because nowadays the Christmas season starts on November 1st. I'm assuming that was not the case. It was not in the 80s, no, it was not. So, like, I'm assuming this takes place over maybe, like, three weeks, right? Well, I would say about three weeks before Christmas. Right. I did not feel like this romance was rushed, which is something I feel a lot 
in comedies. Yeah. I was I very seriously thinking, oh, he's not going to get the girl. But then he did, and I wasn't mad about it. I mean, hey, fellas, if you're listening to this, if you treat women as equals and with respect, you too can get the Jamie Lee Curtis you may deserve. I think, honestly, he did not deserve as good as her, but that's fine. Well, what man does, really? I know, right? Just wait until we talk about 2018 Halloween. Ugh. But, uh... (laughs) One of the things that I noticed while watching this, and also the Blues Brothers, is this is one of those movies that's like a comedy comedy. It's not like a drama comedy or a horror comedy or a tragic comedy that I really, really enjoyed. 80s were really good at that. I don't... There's only kind of a handful of dramedies... Mm-hmm. But in the 80s, but I think that comes more like the Big uh, big Chill era and a little bit past Big Chill, yeah. like um, Sin Almost Fire. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like this type of movies, like the shit that Richard Pryor was doing. What's the dude from who's Willy Wonka? That fucking guy. Gene Wilder. Yeah, like shit like that. Yeah, comedy, comedy. Which yeah. I feel like at some point we're going to have to do Mel Gibson, aren't we? Fuck no. Fuck that dude, yo. Yo, Mel Gibson died. <laughs> well, I didn't expect it to be quite that much, but... I didn't either, man. Bro, I... You don't understand. I grew up on this fucking clown. Like, all action movies, like, I'm there. Like, even when he did uh, What a Woman Wants, I was there. And then him just being wildly gross... With no kind of retribution, like, just go away. Go away. Okay, so I guess we can't cover Mad Max ever. Um, I don't know. Like, we... I well, mean, we I, can also just skip to Fury Road. Well, I mean, we can definitely do that. I rewatched uh, Lethal Weapon 2, like, four months ago, and mm-hmm. it was he was a jerk-off in my I mind. Mean, he's always I still been watched a jerk-off. Mm, kind of. He, you know why he got the role of Mad Max? Why? Because he had gotten in a bar fight the night before, and he showed up looking like the pits of hell to drive his friend to an audition. And the director was like, yeah, that's my post-apocalypse guy. Covered in blood. Uh, we can, but like, we can okay, if we're talking about Gene Wilder, does that mean we have to do a Mel Gibson mini, or a Mel Brooks series at some point? Mel Brooks? Or Mel yeah. Yeah. Um, as long as we don't do Blazing Saddles. Okay, I've never seen Blazing Saddles, so. So, Blazing, I know that one has a lot of problematic. It was like maybe 2015, and this girl I was dating at the time, she was like, "Big, oh, Blazing Saddles, so good, it's so funny, you'll love it." And so we sit down and watch it, and then it's literally two hours of just in words. Yep. Like, and it's not even just oh yeah, they say it once, and then. Uh, as jokes, like, it was, like, literally sitting through white people just throwing on the N-word. Like, it was literally, I mean, obviously, it's a comedy. Obviously, I know it's Mel Brooks, but it's, like, bro, like, none of this shit is funny to me at all. Yeah. I think the idea is that it's making fun of, you know, kind of the Westerns that were popular on television, especially in, like, the 50s and 60s, where that was a very common kind of occurrence. But yeah, I like, don't know that topical no. shock humor has never aged well yeah, whereas would, something like young frankenstein i think has aged much better yeah i would agree and like for 
anyone thing I didn't get the movie. Like, I obviously get, you know, Mel Brooks was really making fun of those white people. I know that the black person who was the lead in the movie was basically like the smartest person and the most charismatic and the most lovable person in the movie. But nah, <laughs> just nah for me. So, no, totally fair. But back to 80s movies being 80s movies. <laughs> like this is from all three of these movies in general. It's basically white men just looking to have fun in different ways. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the 80s was big upon. But uh, before we pivot out of Trading Places, what are kind of your other thoughts in the movie? Like, looking at the movie, I was like, we may have to resurrect the kind of problematic, hella problematic, or burn this movie problematic game. Do you think that this movie would register into that game? I think it would. For me, it's right between Kinda and Hella. Yeah. Because, again, kind of what we talked about in a, in a lot of ways, some of the aspects that at first glance are kind of shock and horror problematic Yeah. are kind of discussed and dealt with in a fairly mature way for a comedy. But at the same time, the throwing around of the queer slurs especially, are, it's kind of gnarly. Oh, yeah, it's definitely gross. Um, and if you look at it now, someone who's never watched this movie watching it now, it's definitely more of a teachable moment of how mm-hmm. that type of thing was very acceptable in the 80s. And, you know, humor against queer people was a definite thing in the 80s and in the 90s and in the 2000s. You can really learn a lot about society and what people can and can't get away with by the arts. And yeah. Like I said, Trading Places was like definitely a part of pop culture. So we let, we let them get away with it. Yeah. I did really enjoy it. And I think there's a lot of good in there. But I really did struggle to get past some of the, I would say, kind of 80s humor trappings that existed in this movie. Especially because Blues Brothers and An American Werewolf in London are so not problematic. Yeah. Like, honestly, I was, like, clenched up waiting for a bad thing to happen in Blues Brothers that I was going to have to talk about on the show. (laughs) I was just, like, wait. I I had never seen Blues Brothers, and I was just waiting the whole... I was like, okay, when is one of them going to, like, treat a woman really badly? When is one of them going to, like you know make a weird queer when is one of them gonna do blackface or like bust out some inappropriate language and it never happened i i barely remember animal house so i can't really speak on that i barely remember three amigos but it's three white people playing mexican so well they're joke they're on the joke so i would say that's probably one of the tropic thunder lane also Mm. and the funny thing is like you can even say Trading Places may be problematic specifically because of Eddie Murphy, but coming to America, it's it's Eddie Murphy's greatest things ever done, and that's not problematic. Well, it's it has a twinge of problematic like every 80s movie, but it's like it's nowhere. Is There's it an no 80s F-words movie anymore. if there isn't a sprinkle of problematic? <laughs> well, mean, no, I guess it's the Blues Brothers. Well, yeah, Blues Brothers is pretty good. But yeah, one of the things that I really appreciated about Trading Places is that, yes, there are some conversations that happen about the kind of the disadvantages that this person had because of the race he was born. And 
obviously the two villains of the film are really the ones who are pushing this, right? Yeah. But also, they completely psychologically torture and destroy Dan Aykroyd. It was a dream. I dreamt the whole thing. It was just a bad dream. Good morning, sir. Merry Christmas. Coleman, I've had the most absurd nightmare. I was poor and no one liked me. I lost my job, I lost my house. Penelope hated me. It was all because of this terrible, awful Negro. It was the dukes. It was the dukes. You're a dead man, Valentine! This movie is like the haunting of Hill House, but for Dan Aykroyd. (laughs) And like, he is completely gaslit and abused out of his entire existence. Yes. And everyone is in on it. <laughs> they legit make him think he's like going completely and crazy. I'll be honest, I think I'd only ever seen Aykroyd in Ghostbusters before. Really? Well, like I'd seen him like in some stuff like as a background, but never as like a lead. Yeah. And I was not expecting to like feel strong Dan Aykroyd feelings. <laughs> like like I, a- I just wasn't. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd is especially because is- his character sucks so bad for the first 40 minutes of this movie no nah, he's a total preppy dickhead dan Aykroyd is a part of 90s and 80s pop culture so it's yeah. so funny hearing you say this now but, you go. but like this movie is also how we end up with lone wolf shooters the movie i mean like white men acting out of desperation because they feel like they were owed something and the rug was pulled out from under them and suddenly they're drunk and they're santa and they have a gun like well the only difference i would say is that even though he was born as you can see very pretentious he he's he was basically going to marry into wealth at least he i guess had a job that he was doing decently well and then that got, got snatched along with, you know, right. money. This is going to also tell how capitalism, if you get the sweet taste of capitalism and it's taken away from you, you'll basically go insane. So. Do you think, like, QAnon folks like this movie a lot? Because they're like, it shows, like, that the, the you know, the, the poor and disenfranchised are coming for the white man. Like, do you think that's, like, a thing? Because I feel like that might be a thing. And I'm, like, a little nervous that's a thing. I mean, did we not, accidentally like whistle 84 dog whistles <laughs> i mean eddie murphy uh, this dark-skinned man with this mini afro at the end of the movie is is rich and happy <laughs> that's gonna upset a certain sector of people <laughs> i just like that he's rich and happy and hanging out with his bff like yeah man they 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 are just hanging out hey man can we all do that man like, they they just and the butler i love that they cut the butler in hell yeah he was in the mix i like that part too did you <laughs> did you understand the ending of how Mornware randolph got poor and how they got rich i i I understood in the broad strokes. I don't need a full explanation of the stock market to understand that they fed them information that caused them to buy unwisely and then they were able to sell off their shares or whatever at a significant or yeah, 
they were able to buy out faster because of that. Uh, I don't care. I understood it. I can't explain it. <laughs> Yo, every, like... I gotta see in statistics, all right? I'm not a math person. <laughs> so, no one who works outside of, like, Wall Street, like, really understood that. <laughs> Look, so for, for those of you who can't uh, see me because you're not in this zoom call right now this is a the wall street journal guide to understanding money and markets from is the spine worn yeah i read it when i bought stock one time uh, <laughs> the one time i don't have a lot of money all right i'm not laughing because you don't have money i'm not dan Aykroyd in training places <laughs> I think this was published in, like, 1983. There's a mail order form in the back. I mean, hey. Hey, su- support the post office. Yeah. Please, please keep buying stamps. 1990. This is from 19... 19- this book is older than me. It's vintage. Classic. Yeah. So, you kind of you kind on the right track. Basically, they bought a ton of orange juice because they figured the product would be scarce and so even though the pi- the price kept climbing, they kept buying the orange juice. In the middle of it, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy promised to sell it per pound of orange juice for $1.42. Right. When the news report came that the product would not be scarce, they ended up buying OJ at like 29 cents. Right. So they bought it for 29 cents a pound and selling it at one forty two a pound. Right. That's the, that's the hack. So maybe we need to pull off some scams like that. Who knows? I liked it. I don't know that I would like... I wouldn't scream this in my backyard. I'll be honest. I mean... Well, you can... Jamie Lee, you know? I, I just... Action. I don't know that I want to, like, screen trading places in my backyard and then have to host a book club about it afterwards. <laughs> like, I'm not ready to host a conversation circle about, like... While I acknowledge that certain aspects of this film are problematic, like, let's take a deeper dive into what's really going on here. Like, <laughs> we need to talk about the real evil of the film. Capitalism. Capitalism, yes. Uh, like, I'm, not, I'm not prepared to have that, that chat. <laughs> it's okay. So few, uh, so few people are. It's okay. As Twitter would say, but you ain't ready to talk about that. And for those wondering the show on my love, Eddie Murphy power rankings, we gotta we have to go coming to America one, Beverly Hills Cops two, I would say Boomerang is three, trading places four, and then forty eight hours five. And we're taking out the actual comedy specials, I will put that as my top five. All right, let me go through my power ranking. Mulan, Trading Places, <laughs> Haunted Mansion. Because oh those God. are the ones I've seen. Jeez. Oh, no. Live from an undisclosed location in a basement in New York City, it's me, Crank, ruler, well, mayor of Dimension X and the producer of the hottest new pod in that dimension or this one, the Shredhead Pod, starring the Blasian Batty, aka Google Chrome Dome, aka Ado Nobu Nigga, aka my best friend, Oroku Saki, aka The Shredder. 
and we've put aside our differences with the Ninja Turtles to be your weekly source of hot takes, sports, and entertainment news. Stay all the way and hear who Saki has named as his Cretan of the Week, and find something valuable in the Shred Commendations. So we'll see you on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever your pods are casts. The Shredhead Pod is a member of the Hyphen Podcast Group. Speaking of cute and you liking it and getting a better rap, American Werewolf in London. Are, are we referring to my, my, my wet dream of the movie, an apartment with a dining room <laughs> in London? Jeez. <laughs> that you can afford while living alone? I mean, I think you renovate this place and it'd be pretty killer. Yeah, no, I, I want an apartment with a dining room in Knightsbridge that I can afford as a single woman. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> you can have weird American men come and give you pleasures at all I times. I mean, hey, I already have bad taste in men. Um, Why not take that shit international? <laughs> and she took bad taste to a whole another level. Ah, woo. I am pleasantly surprised she lived. Yeah, she should have got ace. But, yeah. Nah, no, she was like the only unrepentantly nice person with nothing to gain this entire movie, except let's be honest, it's a white American boy, some mediocre sex. Like, come on. Hey, they're doing it in the shower and they took it to the bed, you know? It wasn't like a pound town situation, but you know. I mean, shower sex is tricky. Anyway, I'm not getting into this publicly. Uh, <laughs> Those that know, no. <laughs> uh, Anyway. Well, I'm sure my boss is listening to this because it's on my resume. Hey, Mike. <laughs> hey, Mike, you're cool. Stay cool, Mike. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so should I talk about my, my initial introduction to an American werewolf in London? You absolutely should. All right, cool. So I'm a big theme park nerd. If you've listened to my Avatar episode, you you know where I just <laughs> had a, a Avatar-themed conniption about theme parks in the middle of talking about the movie. But anyway, so every year Universal Studios in both Florida and California does a thing called Halloween Horror Nights. And basically what that means is they build horror-themed attractions and mazes. And, you know, for like 60 bucks, you can go in at like 6 p.m. until 2 in the morning and go get the shit scared out of you, whatever. And in 2014 or 2015, I can't remember what year, but this was the first year that I was like actively interested in theme parks and junk. They announced that they were doing an American Werewolf in London haunted house. And I was like, yo. So because I'm me and I'm garbage, I watched like 87 different walkthroughs of the haunted house <laughs> trying to figure out like all of the things trying to figure yeah. out what was puppets, what was people in suits, what was makeup, etc. Because I'm a big old nerd. And basically it walks you through all of the finer points of the movie, more or less. Specifically the werewolf parts. There's no <laughs> parts of werewolf man being charming. Understandable. None. Yeah. Is his name Max? No. Is that uh, the dead friend? Uh, some shit. I think the dead friend is Max. The dead friend is Jack. Damn it. Who's the other one? Because he also dies at the end of the movie. David? Yeah. I was going to say Daniel, but that's not right. <laughs> Catherine being bad at names continues. <laughs> anyway, I liked David a lot as a character 
because he he's very just a guy. He's broish. But he's not, not too broish. Right. But like he's just a guy. He's he's backpacking in Europe. They have a weird experience. They kind of have to leave and it's super uncomfortable and they get lost and he sees his best friend get like eight which by the way hi rick baker because i know you listen to our show rick baker multi-oscar award winner for amazing makeup and uh, creature design a hi thanks for listening i ah every time we see the dead friend jack in his state of horrifying decay pretty great i was like i was incensed i was swept up in the moment can i have a piece of toast Get the fuck out of here, Jack. Thanks a lot. I can't take this. Am I asleep now, awake or what? I realize I don't look so hot, David. But I thought you'd be glad to see me. David! You're hurting my feelings. Hurting your feelings? Has it occurred to you that it might be unsettling to see you rise from the grave to visit me? Sorry to be upsetting you, David, but I had to come. I also love the idea that every time he goes to visit David, he has to walk. But because he's, like, undead, he's, like, not sleeping. Like, he's just hanging out in London looking like that. Yeah. The special effects, for me, is the best part of this movie. Like, there's nothing else for me in this movie, honestly. Really? Yeah, I'm well, I'm not a big horror guy. So a lot of horror things, it doesn't necessarily move me in a lot of different ways. Like other than, you know, being a kid and being scared of horror movies, which is probably actually why I never watched horror movies for my childhood. But for me, like just as an adult, I think I've I've only really been like hereditary is the only one that kind of really triggered some like wild reaction hereditary was fucking gnarly like that shit have you wild. seen midsummer yet i saw midsummer and that was wild for other reasons than being scared <laughs> like that shit was <laughs> i don't like to throw around the word crazy for obvious reasons but that was fucking crazy <laughs> that shit was... yeah like were you scared of midsummer or i guess a better question would be do you feel a sense of being scared in horror movies or do you feel a sense of like excitement when you when there's a scary scene in horror movies? So I'll be honest, for me, it really depends on the movie. If I can engage with a story, then I will get scared when it's appropriate to get scared, but in a way that is fun and exciting. If I find your movie boring, I will spend the whole time getting bored and waiting for the next jump scare and having my ears plugged in plenty of time. <laughs> and formulating ways to come up with a drinking game about this. So, like, I don't mean to sound like a smarmy asshole because I don't mean to be, but, like, I like good horror films. Yeah. I cannot abide boring, jump-scare-laden, uncreative horror films. Yeah. And for me, Midsummer is not a horror film. It's, to me... It- Mid- Midsummer is a female empowerment film that is designed to make white men uncomfortable. Oh, is it though? I just feel like it's a revenge flick for a scorned girlfriend. <laughs> Except that, like, I I don't know that it is. Like, I I think the idea that it's like a large group of women like communally screaming and weeping 
because they all feel each other's pain because they've all been that girl well in like a beautiful suicide cult in the woods yeah i need to rewatch it because i'll be honest i kind of zoned in and out of it the first time i saw it because it was maybe a little too real it's Um, it's so much it's like sensory overload like because it's like to me i remember being in a movie theater and watching it and at the end when they're like fucking people were like laughing in the movie theater and i'm thinking to myself like this is so out there that I'm not really, it's not funny. It's it's mega weird. Like the whole screaming thing when they're like all screaming in unison, like it was kind of like, this is a visual medium. This is not a visual medium, but you can kind of just hear the face that I'm making right now. Just very confused about what was happening on that screen. So I think if you break it down to like and explain the feminism to me, I can understand it. Like the what, what you said as far as like they're all screaming in unison because they have this underlying pain that all women feel. I can understand that in very academic terms, but visually that movie was just nuts. Like it's like the, the guy cheated, she fucking hates him, and then he just happened to get burned alive. Like, <laughs> like that's all I saw. Man. Well, I think the implication is meant to be that her desire to see him hurt was so strong and so universal <laughs> that it literally manifested into the like every woman understood. Okay, yeah. I buy that. I buy that. I get, and the problem is, if men do that, men actually do it. So that's gross if men do that. But, but no, I get what you're putting down. Like I get it. But. Also, my favorite thing at Dragon Con this year, which is a a big con- comic convention in Atlanta every year that I went to this year for the first time, was the number of creative midsummer costumes I saw, including a beautiful May Queen that was dragging a burned corpse behind her. Christ. <laughs> God damn. I am here for this. My other favorite was someone built a really beautiful puppet of just the head of Artax, the horse from A Neverending Story. And she was dressed as a Treyu. And she, whenever someone asked for a picture, she would just kneel down and start screaming. Jeez. Yeah. Cosplay. <laughs> uh, cosplay. Anyway, I was even... super blown away by an American werewolf in London, even though I kind of knew like the, the beat highlights because I had watched The Haunted House so many times, I could probably walk through it. And like, be like, and jump scare in three, two, one, go. I really loved, I loved the movie. First of all, it felt like a love letter to London, which I appreciate a great deal. I think from an American standpoint, I think we only see London in those two ways, either it's mega country or just like the downtown city aspect of it so i can understand what you're saying i also think that it is a beautiful escalation of what i would describe as very classic horror Mm. you know so the the idea where she walks down the end of the alley the nurse lady alex and it's like david david is that you david i love you and she's you know really she thinks that will fix it yeah and it doesn't it's I think an interesting retelling of the Wolfman story. I don't think the movie is necessarily bad, but because even when you're saying like for the the horror movies you like, they have to be good horror movies. 
for example, for like me growing up, Nightmare on Elm Street was scary. And it was actually scary more for the movie cover that we had on VHS. And then, you know, Freddy just looking like a total creeper. Looking at Nightmare on Elm Street now as an adult, I appreciate that movie, not because it's scary, but it's actually a very well-made movie. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's so funny. I think the suspension of kind of, you know, I can do it for Avengers. I can do it for virtually every movie other than horror movies. So I think my opinion for horror movies is more like, like, like I said, like just sort of broken down and how it's actually created. Like, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say American Werewolf, I wouldn't say it's a bad movie. I wouldn't say it's badly made. I can understand why it was like a thing in the zeitgeist of how Landis, you know, he could have catapulted his career from this one movie. But for me, it's kind of like, other than the movie and the the kill scene at the end, you know, in downtown London when like bodies just flying everywhere. For me, it's kind of like, it's a run of the mill kind of movie you would catch on USA or straight to video. Like, I think the, the makeup creation is so excellent. It's no way it's a straight to video type of movie. But I feel like if it wasn't that, like this, I think this movie would kind of just be nothing. I think this is my favorite of the movies we watched. And that's not wrong. That's that's totally not a wrong feeling to have about it. Like, and like I said, I'm I'm way too cynical about horror movies. I mean, for me, I'm already like, okay, can I justifiably show this at Halloween, or will I accidentally traumatize oh, yeah. the neighbor kids? Oh yeah, too. That too. <laughs> yes. Trying to avoid super traumatizing the neighbor kids. Okay, it's not super light, traumatizing. Light trauma, fine. Yeah, Halloween level type trauma. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Because for me, first of all, there are some genuinely funny moments in this movie, which I think makes the gritty, uh, gritty, but like 80s gritty. So like neon coated gritty. You know, I agree. I do like, other than the makeup, I do like the relationship between Dave and Jack. That's actually pretty interesting. And I, I also think in a way... Alex's relationship with David is pretty interesting as well because Alex and Jack are direct foils (laughs) because Alex is stay alive. Love is enough. And Jack is kill yourself. It's fucking over, man. And and (laughs) my favorite part about this is the actor who plays Jack. Who's also like a director and producer and other stuff. His picture on IMDb is him with his throat torn out. Jesus. I guess it was a makeup test. Also, just for while we're talking about uh, horror comedy, I would be remiss if I mentioned I'm not actively watching the thriller video right now. I am. Oh, you too? Yeah, I'm watching it right now, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that this movie holds up in ways that I was not expecting it to. I also can't help but wonder, and this is a, a weird deep cut, and I'm sure most of the people that listen to us, this is going to go like slip side and right over their heads, but... uh. I can't help but wonder if this movie is trying to be not only an homage to the original Wolfman, but also an homage to Warren Zevon's song Werewolves of London, which came out in the 70s, which is talking about a werewolf who knows the werewolf tropes. Me? Could be. Um, and it is a song called Werewolves of London. Implicate away, my friends. 
So I, I really enjoyed watching it. I also watched it starting at like 1230 in the morning on Saturday. I shut all the, the blinds in my room <laughs> and made it as dark as I could and, and watched, uh, watched it. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think a question to ask, who wins American Werewolf in London? Is it Rick Baker or is it John Landis? Yes. I don't think they exist without each other. <laughs> Hear me out. I don't think they exist without each other. I don't. Because I don't think Rick Baker would have had as, as strong or as interesting character design without such a well-written and curated script. Yeah. Because the two werewolves look very similar, but the shape of their jaws are a little different. Like the one in the beginning versus the one that is David. And there are a lot of little touches that like, if you look at this werewolf, like it's a fucking werewolf, but also it's David. You look at the stringy guy in the beginning and he's a lot skinnier. He's taller. He's lankier. And like, there's a lot of visual differences between the werewolves, even though they're like really small when you actually look at them. I also think the ensemble of this movie is really good. So like even the the town where uh, the slaughtered lamb is, they're kind of creepy as hell, right? <laughs> and there's no Rick Baker makeup on them. Yeah. So I think that this movie shines because of Rick Baker's makeup, but I don't think that he would have had anything to shine if Landis's table setting hadn't been there. Mm, I'm gonna give it to the baked dog. I'm gonna give it to him on this one. And I don't think like he doesn't deserve an Oscar or whatever. I think he absolutely does. I think he did an amazing job. As someone who loves the classic horror look with kind of what we can do now with modern makeup. Yeah. Rick Baker's my man. <laughs> he does a, I don't know, 15 to 20 minute scene in the Haunted Mansion movie. That's the only good part of that movie. <laughs> but like, I was really impressed with this movie. I really liked it. I think that it held up better than I expected. Go watch it if you like horror. If you don't like horror, you're not going to get like a super compelling yeah, anything you haven't seen now in 2020 because at the end of the day also this movie is 40 years old and it it laid so much of the groundwork of like a modern horror and also in a lot of ways i think it set the table for like cabin in the woods like a horror comedy maybe not as directly but it certainly allowed horror films to be funny in a way that was kind of new at the time i think that this movie is a horror classic and i'm glad that it exists and i think it is a beautiful stepping stone from the universal monster movies to some of the stuff that we have now. So I'm very glad that it exists. I too am glad it exists. I mean, I do think, let's say we have the same thing, but Baker's not a part of this film. The, the, you know, makeup and shit is cheesy. We definitely don't get the thriller video. Like I know that for sure. So mm-hmm. and I think that also, that's probably why I'm, I lean toward Baker a bit more but even in me very neutral about the movie i i'm i can understand its purpose and it definitely has like a lot of purpose so i can appreciate that even if i won't watch it ever again my daddy's podcast is called hyphenation it's the world's greatest podcast barack obama proofed on hyphenation my daddy talks about all kinds of cool things and sometimes i'm on the podcast too Sometimes he has his friend Marcus on. Sometimes he stays up really late and he's tired the next day. But it's worth it. But he loves this podcast and I love his podcast. So I really want you to listen to Hyphenation. 
so Daddy doesn't get sad. He really doesn't get sad, though, because he has me. Oh, wait, please listen to Hyphenation. Thanks, y'all. I love the podcast, so please, please, please try to join. But if you know him. I'm actually surprised Blues Brothers is not your favorite movie of the bunch. I think it's like tied in terms of how good I think it is. Yeah. But I think that liking An American Werewolf in London as much as I did surprised me more. If that makes sense. No, it makes sense. So I think it, it might have to be my favorite just because it was a harder sell for me. Okay. No, that's understandable. I get it. Like, if you were like, okay, so there's a movie with these characters and uh, their whole shtick is that they wear sunglasses the whole time and really don't show a lot of emotion, but they're they're <laughs> really good blues musicians, okay? Or in this case, they're actually soul musicians, which makes the name of the Blues Brothers super misleading, but whatever. Um, <laughs> it's fine. And the movie is about them saving an orphanage and it's full of references that you're familiar with and musical artists that you know and adore doing good music. And also the comedy duo are just like in the context of the film are just as talented as the artists you know and love. Then I would be like, yep, sounds good. (laughs) Which is uh, pretty much what happened with me and Blues Brothers. (laughs) I'm it's so the SNL effect of pop culture in America was a real thing and SNL spawned a lot of bad movies but this is probably the best thing that they ever produced outside of SNL basically this in like Wayne's World but it's definitely Blues Brothers number one yeah I don't know exactly where to start with this movie for me it's something that's kind of been in the in my consciousness for a while i was familiar with a lot of the music from their briefcase full of blues album which came out in 1978 were your parents playing that a lot no but like it it popped up on like weird radio stations sometimes (laughs) okay (laughs) i feel like rubber biscuit was like a weird summer camp song that popped up sometimes (laughs) okay (laughs) well there's like nothing offensive in that okay so i had never seen the movie i had never seen any of the like visuals associated with it except the guys in hats the sunglasses and i believe i had heard one audio bite of dan Aykroyd saying we're on a mission from god (laughs) and that was about it and then through comic cons and stuff i was like okay they have the car with the megaphone on it yeah okay like they've got the knuckle tat like whatever right like i kind of figured out the ephemera about them yeah just through pop culture osmosis basically yeah and i was like this sounds like a thing i would enjoy but i never had any like real reason to watch it until this week (laughs) and then i saw that it was two hours and 20 minutes long and i was like oh god yeah this movie is long as fuck i'll be honest i struggled not checking my phone sometimes in blues brothers some of those car chases are like five to seven minutes too long yeah, even the intro, like from the moment that we start the movie until we even get words from Belushi, like a lot of that could have been really trimmed down. That was unnecessarily drawn out. Yeah, and some of it didn't bother me because some of it I thought was really good table setting. 
Yeah. Which, as we've established now, is a thing John Landis is really into. <laughs> yes. The picking up of the suit. You could have did this in just the credits. Like this could have been like. I, I do seconds. love uh, Frank Oz. That's like one on listing all the stuff, and one of the things is one soil. Like, gold, gold Timex digital <laughs> broken. <laughs> Frank Oz is my favorite part of all of these movies. Just FYI. I mean, he's he's. I mean, shout out to Knives Out. Also, no, actually, I take that all back. I think my favorite part might be Rawhide, which has been <laughs> stuck in my head now for like 24 Rolling consecutive hours. So that's your favorite song of the movie? I don't think it's my favorite song, but I think it's my favorite sequence between the visuals and the music. Okay. Because the comedy that happens during that song is very funny and very dumb, which I appreciate. (laughs) And the song itself is very well performed. Are are those actually Dan Aykroyd and Belushi's singing voices? Do we know? There was one song I think they definitely Milli Vanilli that but yeah. I think the majority of it is them. Because I would feel remiss if I didn't point out that Dan Aykroyd's accent is all the fuck over the place in this movie. <laughs> and it's incredibly distracting. And I can't tell if that's a deliberate bit or if he just did not have his shit together in suppressing his like, eh, because you, you can hear his Canada a lot. Because it's like he's a Canadian trying to do... A Midwestern? No, he's trying to do, yeah, he's trying to do Chicago. Chicago. He's trying to do that. Yeah. And then he tries to do, like, just American white man. It's, yeah, it's it's all over the place. Right. So that's weird, which, fine, whatever. I think this may also be the first movie I've ever seen with Belushi in it. Whoa. He, <laughs> he I mean, RP, but he doesn't have very many. If you didn't watch him primarily through like snl like skits reruns Mm -hmm. and i wouldn't assume young ladies of this generation to have watched animal house i barely watch animal house in all honesty belushi wasn't in much i think the actually the movie before he died it didn't make any money but it was actually critically acclaimed but i don't remember what it was called so i remember watching this movie and just like going this printed money right like this must have made so much money they toured they toured as a real band right (laughs) and like their backing band is booker t and the mgs i think which is like a real band like a real soul band yeah so basically from what i read it did initially start as people from snl going to dan Aykroyd's blues club that he owned in new york at the time you know snl was popping he introduced belushi to blues belushi got infatuated with blues 
then they eventually took that and then made the SNL skit and then they took that and then made like an actual band around that which came with the movie and then came with actual touring which is really fucking wild like so SNL must have been like the pop culture thing of that time if if you can just go from a comedian owning a, a nightclub which is wild in itself in that respect and then pivoting that to all oh, my blues plans going to fucking tour like that's just that's nuts in a good way but it's still pretty nuts i mean yeah i will just say that my dad made an interesting point last night where he goes i mean a huge part of the joke is that these are two white men doing music that has is entirely or not entirely but largely influenced by black culture yeah i think they get that joke also I but think i also feel like they, they are it. depending on people looking at the other cast of the movie no you didn't i and agree doing some research yeah like we we I mean, we have cab calloway and james brown <laughs> right like, and like the like, first the first musical number is in a black church like yeah but they don't dwell on it you're right like there's no conversation about hey you white guys you know right cap Calloway's the one who's like yes get the band back together good i raised you i yeah. raised you on this music literally and yeah. and i also appreciate that he's like radicalizing the kids he's like remember the kids i told you about my kids yeah so their legend survived Also, so many cars. Bro, so many cars. So many cars died during the making of this but film. Also, like, <laughs> so many extras in every scene. Like, that country bar does not need to be as big and as full of extras as it is. That, like, scene at the end doesn't need to have 98,000 people descending on this public square in chicago like that's, everything that's the about the 80s so, cocaine cocaine <laughs> that's the thing about the 80s people want cocaine and a beer around semi-famous people like that's what it is like there's no way around that even if you just say early 80s come be near james brown or come be near aretha franklin like every black person in chicago is coming out for that like there's no way around that yeah. Have you considered standing near Dan Aykroyd and all the honkies come running? It's so many different dancers only use one for one scene. Yeah, and also the number of times that this movie made me shriek, like, with laughter. Uh, like, may, might I suggest stand by your man? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> It was that si the sign language they did was not necessary at all, but but yes, it was. They had to do something coordinated together. So, well, there were a couple of times, like when they were doing the think choreo in the back, which was literally like step cross up, step cross down, and there you can tell they're concentrating so hard. I mean, like you can see them counting. Like <laughs> these one, are still two, white men four, we're dealing one, with. Two, three, four. Like <laughs> these are still white men they're dealing with. <laughs> but that like 
kind of makes it better because they do these like kind of dynamite performances, but as soon as they're in someone else's, like it's not their performance, they have to try so much harder. And I think yeah. that's really funny. Like they're yeah. so used to being the main character that as soon as they're like background dancer three, they're like, <laughs> what do arms do? Basically. I also just love that they keep like, you know, panning the panning the shots around in uh, Aretha's scene and like often it is just like two of the tables are like think think and like one of them is like um like just eating waiting for it to be over they're like oh it must be Tuesday she's starting again (laughs) we haven't talked about the godmother of Chicago drill Carrie Fisher for my mother my grandmother, my father, my uncle, and for the common good, I must now kill you and your brother. Like, whenever I saw Carrie Fisher just blowing all this shit up, I thought immediately of Chief Keef. These bitches are so soft. I thought of, I thought of Bang Bang, like I thought of all that. <laughs> I just love that she painted her nails to blow up her ex-boyfriend. I mean... Some are, you know. I mean, <laughs> time is a flat circle. <laughs> oh, oh man. man! I mean, <laughs> bro, that shit—I was, was not expecting the building to literally blow up like that. Shit was. So I funny. also <laughs> loved when they blew up the the phone booth, bro. You know, <laughs> there must be at least seven dollars in change here. Bro, it's so funny that as soon as they hit the ground, the dummy's arm splattered on the ground. That shit was so funny. <laughs> uh, I I can't remember who I was uh, saying this to, but the other day I said something along the lines of, man, if I had a nickel for every time this person screwed me over, to quote the Blues Brothers, there must be at least $7 in change here. Basically, bro, this movie uh, was too much. Yeah, but I also love, uh, you know, we're, we're in the car. We got half a pack of cigarettes. We got half a tank of gas. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Will you drive? Uh, I mean, you got to set up the play, guy. You can't just be rushing through that. I mean, let me just uh, throw my sunglasses back on. Nice. I'm just watching them uh, do Rubber Biscuit, which I think is just Dan Aykroyd having a stroke into a microphone. Like, just his head is moving side to side. My favorite thing, though, is this is them in Chicago in 1978. And they keep cutting to the audience. And it is equal parts people of color and white folks. Yeah, it's like like mostly young kids there. I don't know that I realized that this was, like, a legitimate musical act. And I think that may have been... Because at one point I said that to my dad, and he's like, duh. And I was like, I have no cultural context for this. I mean, yeah. Like, not only was a, I not yeah. alive in 1978, but like that was 20 years before I was born. Yeah, there like, isn't even a lot of like lore that I got. Yeah, because like, people who heard about it from their older cousins, who heard about it from their older, co- were like eight generations behind me at that point. Yeah, the Blues Brothers did not transition into the 2000s, even though they made they that did. bogus the, bro- the Blues Goodman. Brothers 2000s. No, it wasn't Goodman. That was fucking. It was the other Belushi. It was the it was the fucking Republican one. Yeah. Oh God. So yeah, fuck that movie. 
<laughs> Hang on, um, I'm looking up the the cast real quick because oh, I know shit. the it is John Goodman. Fuck, I thought yeah, he, I thought the I thought the other one was in this movie. Fuck. Oh no, you know what it is? The other Belushi, he he actually toured with Dan at one point. Okay. So, so that's what I guess as far as getting confused. Also, by. like Dan Aykroyd's vodka, very good. Crystal Head Vodka, if you want to sponsor us, please do. Oh, he makes Crystal Head Vodka? Yeah, shit slaps. Okay. Also, just while we're on the subject of modern-day Dan Aykroyd, are you okay? Blink twice if you need help. I mean, those cocaine 80s, you know, they may do stuff to your eyeballs, man. He may blink 50 times. I mean, he's touching 70, man. And so he, are my parents, and they still have their own volition. But your parents didn't do copious amounts of cocaine, did they? That they told you about? Exactly. If you were famous in the 80s, I feel like you just, you like, kind of had to do blow. And I, this is actually this part right now is what I'm, about, what I'm about to say right now is actually pretty serious. Like, Chevy Chase had a bad blow habit. Like, yes. He was, he was like a apparent asshole or whatever but you can kind of see it in his movies too yeah i was gonna say are we gonna end with cocaine talk no we can't (laughs) there's no way we can do that that's not allowed hilarious the one scene where i didn't laugh once was the scene where they were in the fancy restaurant uh, that's all cringe humor and if we've learned anything on this show it's that cringe humor is a very popular trope and like piece of the toolkit especially in 2000s humor a la the hangover a la the chunk of book smart i still don't really like a la super bad that's you again and that scene is all that Uh, one thing i can't stop laughing at is elwood's apparent weird obsession with bread i mean bread is bread his well well, the reason i can't stop laughing is because i also have it (laughs) I am a bread lifer. Because even going back to what you're saying about you being surprised that like they toured, that was just the time, man. That's just the time. Like I don't think any of the last ten years of television or movies spinoffs just don't necessarily work. The eighties and nineties really try finessing it, but now like I can't, I can't think of the last spinoff in this decade or the last decade that was really noteworthy yeah and like i expected this to be good because a lot of people from most of my life have talked to me at length about how good this movie is but i didn't expect to genuinely enjoy the parts i enjoyed as much as i did and i also didn't expect for some of those parts for me to be checking my watch checking my phone whatever as much as i did so it's got like the highest highs and the meest lows. And that's like, I don't want to say it's disappointing because I still think it's a four star movie. But like, you needed an editor, John. Yeah. You needed I... somebody to sit down with you with your script and go, I noticed that you have devoted 10 pages that just say car chase. Yeah. Have you considered making this one eight pages? Even the gag with the in the police station, well, the, I guess the county office, they're showing you go up every single flight through every different way and to stop and block every single exit. Right. Like, 
it's, it's it was a lot that could have been cut out but also like good on them for acknowledging that the only way to like deal with nazis is to cause them great Death. bodily distress um yeah. when he drove them off the bridge i was like why is this still a thing like <laughs> i was just waiting for one of them to yell my liberty hilarious so like are we ending on nazis then is that what we're doing if the world ended Nazis, that'd be a better thing. You don't have much familiarity with like a lot of 80s pop culture movies, do you? I have a lot of music. I don't have a lot of movies. Okay. I have like Ferris Bueller's Day Off was my favorite movie growing up. Okay. So like I got that one. Wait, could we do that guy? The director. John Hughes? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we can. Find Kat at Kat Chinetti on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. Find Marcus at Show and Mad Love on Twitter and Instagram. Please join our Facebook group at We Should Do This Again Sometime and follow us on Twitter at Kat, K-A-T, and Mark, M-A-R-C. Read us at catseesmovies.tumblr.com and themarkrob, T-H-E-M-A-R-C-R-O-B.wordpress.com. Be sure to tip your waitress at Catherine Chinetti on Venmo. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenlee under Hyphen Podcast Group in conjunction with It's Like a Podcast or whatever. Thanks again for listening. We should do this again sometime. This is a Hyphen Podcast production. Are you not entertained?